Opera North's new production of Gilbert and Sullivan's Cloak and Dagger masterpiece, Rudigore, opens at the Grand Theatre Leeds on January the 30th and then tours to Salford, Newcastle and Nottingham. Edward Seckerson talks to the production's director, Joe Davis, and its conductor, John Wilson, about their plans for the piece and what makes Gilbert and Sullivan so special. Joe Davis, I suppose the first thing when you approach these GNS pieces um, that you have to take on board is their very particular time and period. Is that a tricky aspect of directing them, or is it, does it actually help you? No, it is a tricky aspect. I mean, particularly with something like Rudigal that very distinctly has as its sort of framework a, a parody or melodrama. You know, I don't think many of us have ever sat down actually seen a melodrama in the theatre. I mean, I haven't ever, mm, mm. let alone what Gilbert was parodying, which was, a, as he called it, a, a caricature of transpontine melodrama, which is sort of lowbrow commercial melodrama that used to happen across the Thames and <laughs> Cheapside which was very, very distinctive in its form. And, but even when he was writing in 1880, that was sort of on the wane. So even as he was parodying it, it wasn't actually that current. But I guess for us, what we started to do was to look at where those references lived within our brains. So, you know, what was the melodramatic stereotype that I remembered most clearly? And for both myself and Richard Hudson, the designer, it was very much silent movies, you know girls tied to railway tracks and villains with long moustaches <laughs> running around. So we thought that's really where we should begin. Have you made any, um, you and your team, made any changes at all to the text or any updates? Because um, they were satirists after yes. all and, and there were topical references that they would probably approve of. And also little things like, you know, I remember in the Jonathan Miller Mikado when the, the line is, oh bother the, the, the flowers that bloom in the spring, and they changed it to, oh bugger the flowers that bloom in the spring, yes. finally. I mean, anything like that that you... We've done a few, a few little nips and tucks like that, but, um, but not so many. I mean, largely because Rudigore doesn't revolve too much around political parody. So it felt that it felt less need to kind of drag it into a current political context, for example. Oh, actually, the dialogue works perfectly well, doesn't it? It was really Don't interesting. You think? When I was asked which Gilbert and I'd be interested in doing, when we looked at Radical together as a, as a team, everybody asked, who are you getting to rewrite it? Yeah. It was the first question, who, who's going to do the adaptation? And I just said, I don't think anybody is, because it's, it's brilliant. I know a youth who loves a little maid But his face is a sight for to see Silent is he, for he's modest and afraid But he's timid as a youth can be It's a wonderful story that's fundamentally a romance between um, a chap called Robin and a girl called Rose. But what's sort of wonderful for me about the story is that all of the characters kind of revolve around absolutes. You know, there's Dick Dauntless, the sailor, who follows his heart to the end of the line, and Rose Maybud, who follows her book of etiquette until it <laughs> says, jump off a cliff. And, you know, Robin, who will follow his own degree of bashfulness until he's facing a wall for the rest of his life. You know, I mean, it's just, they're absolutely kind of 
fundamental in their beliefs, and that's what um, Gilbert sort of ridicules, really, is uh-huh. that, that absolutism. And yeah. in a way, that's the difficult thing to find on stage, because we're not necessarily living in an age of such certainty. Yeah. And so it's quite difficult for the singers and actors to kind of get into that groove. Now, Robin's not actually all Robin, he is he? Pretends to be, he not, no, all he pretends not. to be. He's he's actually the villainous Ruthven Murgatroyd, who's what's the plot line is that he has to commit a crime a day. Um, yes, he's run away to, from to his family responsibilities. Um, he was the elder brother, and as such, should have inherited this family curse. But he ran away and instead is posing as an arable farmer in the local village of Red Erring. Quite successfully. Quite successfully. (laughs) For 20 years, in fact, he's been quite successfully hiding. But his foster brother, Dick Dauntless, comes back and trying to help him to seduce Rose Maybud because of Robin's own bashful ineptitude. He then falls in love with Rose Maybud himself. And when, in the end, Rose finally decides that she's going to marry Robin rather than Dick, his foster brother, Dick is so outraged at this that he runs and tells the younger brother Despard Murgatroyd that in fact his elder brother Riven has been alive for the last 20 years and masquerading as this farmer and thus the kind of switch between two brothers and their slightly topsy-turvy senses of morality begins. The privilege of class is always a central plank of GNS and, and the times indeed and one of the delicious twists I think in this piece is that there is something rotten at the core of this particular family tree. Yes, I mean, what's really great about the story for me is that in the end, the kind of, the witch's curse, which begins as a kind of, you know, glorified plot device, absolutely turns out to be a kind of explicit test of one's morality. And so it has complete function, whereas throughout it's been absolutely used for its comic effect and sneering villainy. But actually, in the end, it's the absolute substance and core of the piece and investigates, like a lot of other GNS, you know, this issue of duty, which we Mm -hmm. don't really have duty so much anymore, but we have responsibility that's replaced duty. So it looks at at family responsibility and how you kind of uphold one's name. John Wilson, I suspect that like me, you have a passion for GNS. I think anybody who, who loves and cares about the musical theatre has to have a passion for GNS because they were so incredibly influential from the Gershwins to Bernstein, Jerome Kern, you name them. What was it about the, the, the style, do you think, that these great Broadway composers latched onto? What, what was it about that? Well, not so much the composers at first, but the lyric writers in particular were, were nearly all influenced, as you say, by Gilbert. Um, I mean, technical things like sort of double and triple internal rhymes and, and every word being of importance and there being absolutely no flesh on any of the sort of dialogue. And also the, the really uh, 
proper and, and deep collaboration between Gilbert and Sullivan. You know, they, they worked so closely together. It wasn't, if you look at what else was going on at the same time, it wasn't just sort of uh, tunes with lyrics tacked on. It was that whole sort of concept of, of crafting a piece together and forging a style. They were a, p- a perfect match, weren't they? And I mean, I suppose Gilbert's genius as a, a lyricist, there can be no doubt about it. But Sullivan seems to get the rougher ride from musicians, and I just don't understand it, because even his frothiest material is so, so memorable. I don't understand it at all. I mean, every tune has got something. Even when Sullivan's churning out what he might think is sort of utility music, mm. the level of invention is so remarkably high. And when Sullivan is at his best, I sometimes listen to it and I think this is the most beautiful music I know. Bits of the pirates, bits of the gondoliers. I listened to the yeoman oh, two days ago on the train and I, I really think it's one of the greatest operas in English. Mm. I really do. Mm. I can see why Sullivan was always sort of thinking he was squandering his talents because, you know, light opera was seen as the poor relation to sort of to ground opera, but he had all the necessary qualities to be the great mm. sort of operetta composer, a sort of abundance of melodies, rhythmically very inventive. And if you look at how Sullivan's almost playing with Gilbert's words. I sometimes think he set some of Gilbert's word, words in awkward triple meters just to sort of uh, be irksome, just to say, right, I'll show you what I can do with your lyrics, like the finale of the first act of Rudigo, which is in 9-8. If you look at those lyrics on the page, they're duple tongue. Now, Joe, you've straddled um, the worlds of opera, straight theatre and musicals. You were Trevor Nunn's assistant on Oklahoma at the National. You even wrestled with um, Aida at the, the, the Coliseum with Zandra Rhodes. Um, why do you think it was a tricky first night for Ruddy Gore? I mean, there is all this stuff about the spelling of the title with a Y yes. instead of an I. Is it, it was just that Ruddy was a swear word? or Ruddy, that many people claim that Ruddy sounded offensive, mm. which um, there's a very brilliant response that Gilbert had, which I'm sure you probably know, but he replied to somebody by saying, Madam, it can't possibly be the same. If I say that I admire your ruddy countenance, it's nowhere near the same as saying I, I admire your bloody cheek. <laughs> Which I thought was really, really good yeah. as a response. You know, an absolutely sort of typical of Gilbert's wit and sort of acidic replies. But he did come up with other titles. Kensington Gore, which was for <laughs> as a name for the you know stage blood, a make of stage blood at yes. the time. Yes. He also called it um, Robin and Richard were two pretty good men, and then he said, or we could call it Ruddy Gore, or not half so good as the Mikado, which I thought was quite the best <laughs> subtitle. So he was clearly aware that people were judging it mm. in accordance with that parameter mm. and even at that point found it 
rather silly because they're two such different pieces. Mm. Mm. But there are also great challenges technically for Gilbert when he was doing this. I mean, there are great sort of inserts in his diary where he says you know, that he was completely exasperated with stage management and the production team because they had roller, a roller blind mechanism to release the ghosts. And um, they turned all the lights out on the first night and Sullivan conducted with a little red light on his baton. And so all the lights were out and all the audience could hear was banging and crashing and thumping around. And the roller blinds got stuck and so none of the ghosts could actually get out of their paintings. So when the lights went up after all of this crashing and banging and watching Sullivan with his red tip baton, about three ghosts were on stage. That was it. The rest were still trapped in their frames. And um, Gilbert very famously at that point said, we can only have this happen once in the piece, and then he cut all the ghosts from the finale oh, yeah. because he couldn't bear the thought of seeing them all get out of their frames a second, Ever practical, a second yes. time. Yes. So, um, God. I mean, you know, it's a tricky thing to achieve because it's, it's not even really that you can do it in a convincing way with film because they've got to become 3D. You know, yeah. it's not, you could do it if they stayed on film, but it's less exciting, I think, for the audience than absolutely coming into the space. We've got some clever solutions, I think, and um, it should be exciting. John's crossing his fingers frantically. <laughs> violent sort of change of mood for the ghost scene and it's Sullivan rolling his sleeves up and saying oh, this is this is what I can do if you want me to. All the sort of dramatic thrust of those sort of earlier uh, melodramatic uh, grand operas and I think it works brilliantly. I don't see it's incongruous at all. I think it's very appropriate setting of the words as well. It's brilliant use of the chorus and it's a sort of justifiably famous highlight. Mm. Mm. Let's look at some of the highlights of the score from your point of view, um, some of the numbers. I mean, I think a very good example of a, of, of a number that has that inbuilt charm that you're talking about that Sullivan couldn't help but exhibit is um, the duet, I Know a Youth Who Loves a Little Maid, which may appear sort of um, a very simple, straightforward too, but it's actually much more than that, I think. It's, it's funny you mention the word charm because um, that word keeps coming up in rehearsals, music rehearsals anyway. And it's a quality which uh, doesn't have much currency these days. Yeah. It's a shame because mm. that charm was passed down to Edward German, then to Eric Coates and became a sort of uh, a main, one of the main characteristics of that sort of English lighter music. Oh, little man, oh, little man, oh, little man, 
That duet is charming and it's got a wonderful melodic shape to it. The, the solo which immediately precedes it, the waltz tune, is absolute typical. Sullivan, he just couldn't help those turns of phrases at cadence points, corners, where perhaps he'll double the voice with the oboe, and, and it's so distinctively him. And how do you put these things into words? I mean, it's, you can't really talk about music. Well, it's hard, but I mean, it's, and, and it's one of the frustrations of trying to, to say yeah. to someone who turns around to you, many of my colleagues turn around and say, well, you know, I hate this stuff. It's so trivial. And I say, no, 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 it's not. You know, why, how can you say that about something which, which, as you say, turns with such elegance? The patter song is probably the best patter song in any of the operas. The ghost music is wonderful, the ghost scene. Uh, the madrigal in the first act finale is the most richly textured of all the madrigals. It's, it, it involves a chorus, I don't think any of the others do, although I might be wrong, people writing in and complaining. But it's a sort of uh, impassioned response to the seasons. And if you say people find it trite and sort of lightweight, just Stop being so cynical and just to open your ears and your heart to this wonderful music. Well, they were funny as well. That's the other thing. If I were not a little man and really silly, I should give you my advice upon the subject really nearly. I should show you in a moment how to grapple with the question and you'd really be astonished at the force of my suggestion. On the subject, I shall write you almost far. You are the letter full of excellent suggestions when I feel a little bit. But at present, I'm afraid I'm as bad as any hatter, so I'll keep them to myself, but my opinion doesn't matter. Her opinion doesn't matter. Her opinion doesn't matter. Her opinion doesn't matter. Her opinion doesn't matter. My opinion doesn't matter. Her opinion doesn't matter. My opinion doesn't matter. matter, 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 There are other delicious parodies in it. I mean, Mad Margaret as a character. The Ophelia. Famous woman in the piece, as far as I'm concerned, actually. I think she's just... Tell us about Mad Margaret. Um, as played by, let's say, Heather Ship. Yes. Yes, Heather Ship is going to be a completely fabulous Mad Margaret. There was an essay that I read by um, an American doctor, I think, who claimed that Rose Maybud was, in fact, the love child of Mad Margaret and Despard. Because only Mad Margaret would leave Rose Maybud hung upside down in a plated dish cover and the knocker of a workhouse door. <laughs> um, and I think, uh, I think that's probably, for me, Mad Margaret's sad story. That mm. actually she imagined she was going to have this sort of perfect family idyll with Despard, and it just never really happened. And even when they've been married a week, it's clearly not going to exist in Basingstoke or wherever they end up. <laughs> I, I also have this mouth-watering prospect of Anne-Marie Owens as Dame Hannah, who's um, uh, condemned to eternal maidenhood. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that, that, just that image alone is, is enough for me. Yes, I think mean, what's <laughs> wonderful about Anne-Marie is that actually you do feel slightly bad that Anne-Marie is condemned to eternal maidenhood. <laughs> You know, there are certain people that you could put in there and you think, oh, well, that's all right. But actually, Anne-Marie is a loss to the male race of condemned to eternal maidenhood. So you get that sense of loss with her, and she plays it rather brilliantly, mm. really brilliantly. <laughs> and the collaboration between her and Stephen Page as Roderick is really glorious. We had a, 
a very special moment, I think, when we did the sing-through and read-through where they sang, there grew a little flower, which has always been quite a difficult number um, that comes right at the very, very end of the piece. and was actually quite the most touching number of the entire kind of evening. She to cower, for she dreaded not its power. She was happy in the bower of a great oak tree. Sing hey, lack a day. Somebody was once asked to define what was Sullivan's unique style, and it really is that combination of English church music and. Italian opera. And in some pieces, the gondoliers, the pirates, come to mind immediately. You, you get the two side by side. <laughs> I mean, some people say about Sullivan that he could have been a greater composer had he not been as, as lazy, actually, because he had this <clears throat> incredible grounding. But, I mean, that is to undermine, I think, the quality of these Savoy operas. I think he was, he was a great composer, and his greatness was in writing immediately attractive um, light music for the theatre. That was his genius. Why should that be relegated to sort of a lesser genius? And when you listen to his serious works, um, he aspires to profundity and misses the mark. It's sentimental. And that sort of vein of sentiment which runs through these pieces is one of the things that makes them glorious works. Is Radigal one of your favourites? So presumably you wouldn't be here otherwise. It really you? is one of my favourites. Yeah. And I... Um, jumped up and down with glee when I got this job. And if there's any of the GNSs which I think really needs uh, a good new production, it's Rodrigo. Because it was written whilst Sullivan and Gilbert were at the height of their powers, they're both working at full tilt, and the score is, I think, with the yeoman uh, and the gondoliers and the McCollets, right at that very high level. They are musicals, like operas, of the highest class. Mm. And they make you laugh. Mm.